What's up, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Rico's Watches podcast. I'm your host, Eric, and I'm joined today by an incredibly interesting guest with an amazing background that I think is going to be super fun to interview and for you guys to hear about today. Uh, J.R. Seeger, who is a former paratrooper, a former agency case officer uh, for the CIA, and currently a, a writer and an author of some really, really interesting books and series that uh, he's going to be here to tell you about as well, too. How's it going today, Jr.? It's going fine, Eric. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. You have uh, such a, fan, a fascinating background for people to hear about. And, um, you know, I know you're a busy guy and it took a little bit of doing to make the interview happen, but I'm happy that we did. And uh, it's going to be uh, really exciting to get into. Before we do kind of get into some of your background and some of the other topics we're here to chat about, what do you have on the wrist today? Uh, well, today, uh, actually pretty regularly, this is a piece that we can talk about later. It's the the piece that started it all as okay. far as my watch collecting. This is a 1971, what's called a Boulevard Deep Sea chronograph. Uh, and it is, uh, we can start anytime you want about this, but it's what my mom gave me when I graduated from high school. Wow. And it has been with me uh, ever since. It's uh been uh it's a, it is not a desk diver it's actually been uh in you know dive uh, down to about 110 feet in the red sea it's been on parachute jumps it's been in the military with me uh it's got some funny sort of tales in and of itself uh and uh, now it's more or less i mean it's it's now it's of course over 50 years old so it you know it, it's taken we take it a little bit more gentle with it but then i'm i have to take a little bit more gentle with myself too these days so there you go ah it's an incredible piece and one that's been through so much with you and has been sort of by your side i can only imagine the amount of like sentimental value that piece must have for you and all the memories connected to it you said that you know we, we can kind of talk about it later but let's kind of get into it now just while it's a relevant topic like what what more can you kind of share about that piece or some of the great things it's done well, okay, so let's start with the fact that it's it's sentimental because um, when I was getting ready to graduate from high school, uh, just about three and a half months before I was about to graduate, my, my father died. Mm. Uh, and uh, the fact that, I mean, obviously I was just sort of a, you know, a punk teenager like most 17-year-old males are, but... Uh, as I look at it in retrospect, it was a fortune for my mom to spend uh, to get me a watch. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, the you know back in the day, 1971, 72, this watch cost a little over a hundred dollars. That's a lot of money uh, if you if you know you're all of a sudden my mom is looking for a job. Uh, you know, my dad has passed. Uh, I've got a brother who's just going into uh, middle school. I mean, it's just it's just an enormous uh, uh, thing for her to uh, have done. Uh, time, you know, time is is really something that is built into who I am, and in, in, in a lot of ways, my father and my grandfather were both in the railroad. In fact, I have right here my my dad's. Uh, a chronograph that he wore every day at work as a railroad fireman and engineer. And, uh, you know, uh, time is, is, is everything. I don't know if you're familiar with, or I've ever heard some, uh, uh, 
you know, some mentor or some coach say, you know, get on the ball. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what they're talking about is uh, the railroads in the 19th century had a catastrophic accident and they hired a, a man named Ball to uh, centralize or to, to structure time on the railroads across the entire country. So railroad watches, whether they are pocket watches in the 19th century or wrist watches in the 20th century, had to be certified once a month by a railroad authority so that you could use them. So, I mean, I remember my dad wearing this watch. I remember him uh, all the time. He actually had two watches. He had a pocket watch and a, and a, a wrist watch. So to get a wrist watch uh, and a chronograph, no less, from my mom was a, was a huge deal. So I wore it all the way through college. I wore it all the way through uh, graduate school. I went to, I was an archaeologist. I went on archaeological digs with me. Uh, and then I, when I joined the army, it uh, went on uh, training exercises. It went on uh, on uh, parachute jumps with me. Uh, it the 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 bezel on it today is a replacement because while I was in the military, I was at a, a mortar gunnery school, and a uh, the the I was working with a, what's called a four four point two inch mortar. It's a very heavy mortar tube and it slid off the its bipod ran down my arm hit the watch shot the the crystal and the bezel completely off into someplace who knows where and then um and then dropped to the ground um so it's got a new a new crystal, a new bezel. It also, because of that, it has it's supposed to have 20 millimeter lugs, but of course one of them is actually 19 from the from the chunk that uh, that the four deuce took out of it. Uh, so then you know I wore it uh, through my time in the army. I wore it uh, in my early days of the agency. It is it had a you know over time the tritium loom wears out. And a lot of what the, you know, you do in the agency is in the, in the dark. And so you need to have a watch that you can see in the dark. So by the mid eighties, it was, uh, not my, not my work watch, still a go-to watch, still my dress watch, but it, it was, uh, and the tritium loom today is completely dead. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it is, uh, because it was not, it's not like tritium gas, like the marathon watches, mm-hmm. uh, which I have. Uh, but it's, uh, it was just tritium paint, and that you know, not enough on the, on the dial anymore to even get revived if you tried. So mm-hmm. that's the story of this watch. It's, uh, I just had it uh, serviced, uh, sent it to Grand Central Watch because there, it is a, it's a complicated. Um, chronograph mm-hmm. it's a value it's a value chronograph so i wanted to send it to some somebody who would know how to work it and six months later and now it's back on my wrist that's awesome that's so cool to be able to have that piece and, and like i said if i had to be involved in so many uh, special memories and be along your side all this time right one of the things you kind of talked about was uh your your early kind of archaeological work and then also your military work which kind of came first and i guess like how did you 
like what was your field of study in archaeology and then how I, I think you mentioned you went from archaeology into the military so how did that transition happen you know i recently talked to a bunch of of kids who were in high school and then in some in college as well. And they, they asked sort of the same question. And of course, the, the, the short answer is that it took me a while to find a job that I was any good at. Mm. Uh, so I, after college, I, I went to uh, graduate school and thought that I would be, you know, a, a scholar mm. and then come to find out I'm really bad at being a scholar. I mean, it just you know, I was a good student. Don't get me don't get me wrong. I mean, I was a fine student, but a really crummy scholar. Uh, so I worked for a bit after after I got my master's uh, as what's called a I'll called at the time at least was called a site bump. That is, you you worked on a, on sites on contract. Basically, you got paid to to be on the dig. And I worked in Wyoming for uh, about a year. And realized that it was pretty cool working in the summertime. It was really cold working in the laboratory in the wintertime. And mm -hmm. I wasn't getting a, paid a whole lot. And so I realized that um, since I already knew I wasn't a scholar and I knew I wasn't going to go back and get a PhD, I decided I needed to find a, yet another job. Um, so I joined the Army, much to the shock of my uh, girlfriend, now wife, as I walked in one day, I said, oh, I've enlisted in the army. She said, oh, what? Uh, so uh, so it was just, it was, I mean, I'd always wanted to do something in, in service. Mm -hmm. I'd always, my dad had been in World War II. I knew lots of people that I had worked with when I was in college who had been in the Korean War and Vietnam War. And I, I wanted to do something. Uh, and so I joined the army as a private. And then once I got through basic training, they sent me to OCS to get me commissioned as an officer. And it was, uh, as basically, you know, I, mean, I had six years of college that sort of made it pretty obvious to the recruiters that it made sense to send me to OCS. Hmm. So then, uh, you know, after OCS, you go to bunches of different schools. Uh, when I got out of ranger school, uh, I went to the 82nd and uh, spent four years with the in with the 82nd as a uh, rifle platoon leader and other platoon leaders and and junior staff officer before i before i left okay and so what was some of the the i guess like what was going on in the world at that time and what was sort of the climate of you know military work at that time and how did that sort of set you up for your transition then over to the agency well, uh, I'm not sure that it did, but uh, so we're talking about the early 1980s. Mm -hmm. So uh, the U.S. Army was still trying to uh, dig out from a, a bunch of different problems that it had had post-Vietnam, a lot of uh, shrinkage of manpower, uh, shrinkage of budgets, doing all of that kind of stuff. Uh, I joined when uh, under the Carter administration and then served for the rest of my time under Ronald Reagan. Mm. The 82nd at the time was um, part of what was called the Rapid Deployment Force. And so it was uh, a, a unit that was that one portion of the 82nd at all times was on two hour notice to go go anywhere in the world. And so we had um, you know we had nine nine rifle battalions. And so uh, you know, you went from 
two hours notice, you know, through four hours notice to the end where you were on, you know, six weeks out and then, uh, then rotated back through again. I, the big thing for me, I think for the, in my time, the only true uh, adventure was I went to, uh, I served for six months in the Sinai peacekeeping force. My battalion was sent there to, uh, to be on, you know, this is part of the, uh, Camp David Accords, where the, the Israelis uh, gave back the Sinai Peninsula. Mm -hmm. And so you have a, a multinational force and observers is what it's called. And we sat uh, the 82nd, well, we rotated between the 82nd and the 101st Light Infantry. Uh, but our unit, we were from the tip of the Sinai Peninsula, Sharm el-Sheikh, all the way up to uh, Elat, so the entire coast of the Red Sea. Uh, and uh, with small outposts all along those those areas. So it was, I mean, that gave me an opportunity to see the Middle East, which was something that wasn't just all sitting in the middle of the desert. We did uh, periodically had opportunities to travel. So traveled to Egypt, traveled to Israel. Uh, and then we had a, uh, one of the training, pro one of the training programs was to, uh, was a diving program. So I got a chance to learn to dive and uh, dive in one of the greatest places on the planet, or, you know, the Red Sea, basically down to, well, as far down as I ever went, which was, you know, 110 feet. It's the water's absolutely clear. I mean, it, you know, you lose light, obviously light bends, but it was clear all the way down. So we could see, you know, we dove a, we dove a Phoenician wreck. We dove uh, along coral beaches. We dove. You know, it's just a really wonderful opportunity. Mm. Um, so that was, but the you know on the eighty second, what we did on a regular basis was we were we were on rotation where we were standing by for the president of the United States to call up and send uh, somebody. And of course, you know, in the while I was there, we had just rotated off of one. Once you rotate off what was called, you know, the two hour window, mm -hmm. you then went to the, you know, you were at the bottom of the pile, at, uh, you know, so you were, so you had division ready force one, which was one battalion, and it rotated all the way down then to division ready force nine. And uh, during the operation in Grenada, uh, we were in nine. So we spent our time outloading just about the entire 82nd. Uh, you know, we were, and of course the, you know, the first ones in were the Ranger, the Ranger Battalion and then the 82nd. And of course the, one of the tier units also went in to uh, protect the students because that was part of the problem was there was a threat to an American students who were there. So anyhow, that was, uh, that, that was the only real sort of war experience, which was not, you know, I mean, at the time when I was in the 82nd, it was the only thing I ever did. The only lesson I learned there, I had a battalion commander who had very, was a very quiet gentleman who had, uh, you know, until you saw him in dress uniform, you never realized you know, sort of how heroic he'd been. And, you know, we were working on this uh, during this time period and he started walking around because when you're doing the, uh, when you're doing the outload, you're load planning, you're 
loading, you're rigging, you know, soldiers, you're doing all that kind of stuff. And he'd walk through with a sergeant major on a regular basis and, and, you know, tap one or another of an officer or an NCO. He'd say, you need to, you know, get some sleep. And at one point I said, you know, sir, I'm fine. He said, no, you don't understand, JR. You know, you can't stay awake for a whole war. You know, I, I, I've tried that. It, it, it doesn't work. I, I, and I was like, okay, he's right. And of course, it's one of those, that's one of those lines that I've used. I used uh, later in my career a couple of times because it is true. It seems like you can run on adrenaline for a long time, but the truth is you can't stay awake for a whole war. Mm-hmm. No, and it sounds like I that mention that you just made right there was was something that I'd seen reference to in a couple of the things I read about you was you know how you use that in your leadership and and you know looking after your guys as it were right you know, one of the things that I came across as well too is that you're you're multilingual right you can speak multiple different kind of uh, languages known in the Middle East for example such as uh, Dari, uh, Farsi, and Tajik. How did you pick up yeah. those languages? Was that well? Great? I mean, so so I'm I, I I studied Spanish when I was in in high school and college. Okay, so I had a I mean I started started studying Spanish. I was lucky enough. My little high school had uh, a program that started Spanish language in third grade. So I mean I w- went through. Now today I I can still read Spanish and I can sort of understand a conversation, but I couldn't generate a Spanish sentence if I mm-hmm. wanted to really. Well, of course, so, so what that, but what it does, I mean, one of the things that people don't realize is that there's a part of your brain that is, you know, is, is coded for language skills. Mm-hmm. And if early on in your life, you, you improve or you expand that part of your brain, then learning another language afterwards is not as hard as you, as it was when you first started. Now, uh, it sounds wonderful to say I could, you know, I could speak Dari, Farsi, and Tajik, but of course they're all Persian. They're all Persian der- derivatives. So the truth is, is that it's uh, it's pretty much uh, like being able to speak the Romance languages. You yeah, know, French, once you learn one, if you learn French, you're pretty good. You're going to be pretty comfortable learning, you know, Spanish or Italian. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's and uh, as a as a Canadian, I know you you have to learn French as part of your rules and regulations. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyhow, so but it is funny because it is uh, I served in Europe for almost four years and I picked up German without ever studying any German. Now, I didn't don't get me wrong. I couldn't have an erudite conversation with anybody. But we used to joke that I was uh, pretty proficient at what's called um, Bahnhof Deutsch, right? Uh, German train station. Uh, so uh, that meant I could, you know, get a plane ticket, a train ticket, a hotel room, a rental car, uh, ask uh, directions, all that kind of stuff in German without any kind of problem. I have actually at one point in my, I was working with the Germans at the time, and they were convinced that I was just not telling them the truth that, that I was I was being I, I was trying to disguise my German skill and the truth is is that I could never have had a conversation with them that made any sense and it would have been dangerous so no I always had a German speaker uh, 
with me some you know other person from the agency to, to be sure but if i went out onto the street was doing street work in in europe i couldn't i mean i i suppose i could more or less look like a german uh and in a foreign country i might be able to pass for about 10 minutes as a german hmm. but you know in in train stations and plane stations and our airports, you know, that's probably good enough. Hmm. And so after you finish up your time in the military, what was sort of the next step in your career? Okay, so that this is where it gets, this is a, uh, this is a story that, that can't really exist anymore. I mean, okay. the, the CIA, the CIA today, rightly so, uh, recruits through, you know, direct applications on the internet. Mm-hmm. I tell people all the time the 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 federal the federal system whether you're talking about the FBI the secret service CIA the DNI the DIA all the you know all the three letter outfits to expand and to have a better balance of who should you know who's going to apply you need to do this on the internet today i mean that's just the way it is mm-hmm. When I was, uh, of course, there was no internet in 1985. Let's start with that. But um, in 1985, it became pretty clear that I was uh, not going to be able to stay in the army. Uh, the army was shrinking again. And, you know, the reality is, is that unless you're truly exceptional for some reason, I've never, mm-hmm. I've been you know, slightly above average in some things. I've never been exceptional at anything. Uh, but if you're, unless you're truly exceptional, then what happens is, is that they're going to, uh, if they have to shrink the force, if they have to shrink the officer corps, they're going to shrink the officer corps by OCS officers first, then ROTC officers. And if they have to, West Point officers. Now that's simply... That's not that. That's not some sort of. It's not some sort of prejudice. It's just a pure getting your money back. It's amortization, mm-hmm. because it costs a little over a million dollars for a West Point graduate to become an officer, mm-hmm. and about a half a million dollars uh, for an ROC, ROTC graduate to become an officer. But from the OCS, you know, I mean, I came in, I was an E4. So, so the only cost to the, to the United States government was five months salary as an, as a, as an E4, which Mm -hmm. is probably about a dollar 75 a month, you know, I mean, it wasn't really very much. So, so I understand now, of course, you know, why they would do this. But it was pretty clear. The handwriting was on the wall. Mm-hmm. I was, you know, I was going to be shunted to progressively less productive jobs. Um, and I was smart enough, and I'd known a bunch of officers who had been uh, forced, not either forced out or forced to return to uh, enlisted service. Uh, after Vietnam, so I talked to them a little bit. They were like, you know, this is this is where it's going. You just need to know. Um, so 
I was puzzling with my wife over what are we going to do next? You know, here we are. I'm on my third career and it hasn't worked out so well so far. But I was, you know, I was at that point, I was in my early 30s. So I'm thinking about, well, do I go back to school? Do I, you know, get a, uh, you know, go to a, some sort of, do I go to law school? Do I become an accountant? What, you know, what am I? What am I going to do? Or am I going to turn my military skills, my airborne skills into something else? And I was at work one day, uh, literally in my office, and the phone rings and, it, you know, I say hello. And the guy says, uh, Captain Seeger. I was like, yeah, that's me. <clears throat> Not knowing who the guy was, he says, well, you know, I am, and I forget his name because it was alias, of course, anyhow. Mm. But, you know, I'm Joe from the CIA, and I was wondering if you'd thinking, I know you're thinking about a career change, and I uh, wondering if you'd consider the CIA. And of course, you know, it was a cold call in my office. I'm like, you know, I've got lots of pals who are jokers, and I was like, you know, who is this really? He says, no, no, really, I'm, I, I'd like to, you know, talk to you and would you meet me out uh, off post um, tomorrow i was like sure why not you know so uh that's how i ended up i mean it it took it's much more than that right i mean you get you know that you i obviously did well in the first interview then you do two more interviews you go through the medical you go through the polygraph you do go through the background check so uh, between October of 1984 and uh, April of 1985, I was in limbo, not really sure what was going to happen, and uh, got the you know uh, the the agency hired me. They decided I was you know worth keeping, you know, and uh, and that's that was the start of the career. So, in the long run, I found out much later that I had colleagues from college who were already in the agency i didn't know they were in the agency they were undercover and i had been writing to them about my sort of lamentation about what was going to happen to me mm -hmm. and they put my name in i didn't find that out until probably the well actually probably the summer of 1986 so and so would that be like back then you kind of talk about how there was like the cold calls and things like that. Would there be a lot of recruiting just done through word of mouth recommendation from other people back then? Like would, would the, the agency at that time, was it of a size that they could be, I suppose the CIA is probably always choosy about who they hire regardless. But I, what I mean is like, were they in a position where, you know, it was really just kind of word of mouth, people that were recommended were the people that were getting hired, or was there really a big recruiting boom going on at that time as well in the 1980s? No, there wasn't. I mean, I, I, to give you, I mean, just pure numbers, okay? And I'm not going to use numbers, numbers, because I don't really know them, but uh, I'll give you something I was told regularly. In uh, When I joined the CIA in 1985, and I was going into the Directorate of Operations, right? So, that's the, the that's the field that does mm -hmm. espionage. Mm -hmm. uh, in the so in 1985, the entire directorate of operations, all the people in the field, all the people working in headquarters, were fewer than the all the special agents in the FBI field office in New York. Mm. We we were small real small 
and still are pretty small. I mean, people assume that because they see in the movies lots of, you know, big rooms with lots of, of, of uh, connectivity and computers and, you know, big screens and all that stuff. But the, the agency has always been exceptionally, an exceptionally small outfit. And so I think probably, I, I don't know, I wasn't involved in, you know, I don't, you know, there's lots of different things. I don't know about what my, what the agency looked like in 1985, but I can say that my guess is the vast majority of my classmates were all individuals who had received that tap on the shoulder saying, Hey, you know, if you're really not happy with this job, there's another job out there. And now I'm sure the folks in the directorate, it was, it's now called the directorate of analysis, but it used to be called the directorate of intelligence. I'm sure that many of those folks were sent in their applications. They're, you know, PhDs and already scholars and the agency needs precisely that kind of skill set. So my guess is, is that and that's the same for the scientists that are associated with the Directorate of Science and Technology. But uh, at the time, in the, at least for the DO, uh, it was pretty much a tap on the shoulder. Mm -hmm. so, so what would be, I guess, like you sort of alluded to it already with some of the scholarly requirements or interest and benefits of the CIA, but like what would be if you could kind of just expand on what would be like a profile of a CIA field officer, for example, like what sort of... Uh, qualities do they need to embody what do they look for in somebody like that i mean obviously you did that job for quite a while so i'm sure you have a good idea of sort of the things that are required of somebody in that role so what what would that be like what would that look like you know i always when people ask me that kind of question i mean i and i'm not trying to dodge it but i'll i'll just say i'll, I'll give you uh a, a a taste of day one mm -hmm. hour one of spy school mm -hmm. okay the answer to all questions is it depends. Uh, and, and the reason for that is, is because it, espionage is a human uh, operation, right? Human intelligence. And every person is different. You're different from me. You're different from your colleagues, I'm sure. So the, the short answer is it really truly depends on individual traits that are that can be diverse. So, uh, so for example, um, there's one thing that you absolutely have to be willing to do, and that is have a a, a, a strong ability to accept ambiguity. Mm -hmm. Okay, you have to be able to know that there are no black and white answers to anything in your trade and if you are really a serious black and white kind of guy and many i mean man or woman i, I say guy gender gender neutral uh if you really are a i know what's right and i know what's wrong and that's the way it is then you're probably not going to be a, a, a very successful case officer that doesn't mean that you aren't going to be as successful in the CIA. I have a friend who didn't make it through the, the, the case officer training program because he was, he had real problems with ambiguity. He switched over and got another kind of job in the CIA and 
was enormously successful because there's all kinds of jobs in the CIA. But in the, in the case of human intelligence, really a tolerance for ambiguity, uh, a, a curiosity about people and about places. Um, and that's, you know, and of course it really helps if you have some kind of language skill or innate language skill. You don't necessarily, I mean, the CIA is going to train you in language. I mean, I didn't learn Persian until I was in the CIA, right? I mean, why would I? Mm -hmm. um, so those are about the only things that make, uh, you know, that, that you can say are, you know, go, no go uh, positions. The rest of it is just every person's different. And so everybody has a different in a way of doing the job. People used to say, well, you know, they have, you have to be an extrovert to be in the CIA. Well, no, actually, you don't have to be an extrovert. You have to be willing to, to be with people, but you don't have to necessarily be the life of the party. I never was. Uh, and, and uh, I did okay. You know, so there's, um, so there's no real cut and dried beyond just, you know, basically those three things, right? A tolerance of ambiguity, uh, at a curiosity, and uh, some basic willingness to learn languages, because obviously it's a foreign service, right? So hmm. you're not going to be very successful if you can't, can't learn at least one language. In fact, I would say that you probably wouldn't last very long at all if you couldn't learn a, a foreign language that's it so what was it in you i mean we talked a little bit about language already but like what was it in your life then that you thought sort of set you up well for that position like obviously you know being able to operate comfortably sort of in the gray and having that natural inquisitiveness to ask questions and be interested in people and places like where did that come from from you to kind of set you up for that you know, I don't know. Well, I, my college career was was eccentric. Mm -hmm. I went to a college that isn't even open anymore. Uh, it it was called well, the, it was called Eisenhower College, mm -hmm. and it was created uh, by the general officers who served with Ike in uh, in World War II, and then when he was the first chief in in Europe after the war as well as Eisenhower. And he just basically said, you know, we need a, we need a cadre of young people who are exposed to more than just America. Mm -hmm. He had, you know, he'd served for a very long time in, in Europe. Mm -hmm. And then as president, of course, if you think about the early cold war, incredible challenges, right? You've got challenges. He, there, we were still in Korea, uh, the, you know, the Korean conflict and we had the cold war. We had, you know, all, we had all kinds of stuff going on. Uh, and he just recognized that you needed to have people who were comfortable with that, uh, other cultures. Now I'm an anthropologist by training. That was my, you know, that's my undergraduate degree and certainly my graduate degree as well. So you, you mix both the Eisenhower College, what, the, what was called world studies. I mean, one of the reasons it didn't succeed, I suppose, is you didn't, you know, if you joined up to Eisenhower College, the first two years, you had no electives. Hmm. You, you, you took courses based on a program that took you through 
a blend of of culture, history, history, physical history, language, uh, art, music, philosophy, mm. and you started with the earliest written cultures. I mean, my very first class and my very first day at Eisenhower College was about was about early pre-dynastic China. So, I mean, so we had, uh, you know, we were exposed to things that, so I think that that helped me being an anthropologist, of course, and having actually done anthropological field work, you learn early on that if you can't understand people and the fact that they don't see the world the way you do, you're just not going to succeed as an anthropologist. You're just mm. not. I mean, they're, you know, because culture does three things, right? Culture teaches you who you are. It teaches you how you should act, but it also teaches you what the world looks like to, to your group. And so, that means that a, a, a culture in Asia or Africa or South Asia, I mean, I was a Central Asian guy, so South mm -hmm. and Central Asia were my areas of expertise. Uh, they're nothing like, uh, you know, our, our Western European heritage. Mm -hmm. North America, of course, has got a blend of lots of different cultures, but basically all three countries in North America have a, uh, a, a history associated with European Europe, right? So uh, that was just you know part of I think what set me up. Uh, it helped me understand uh, some of the you know oddities of the human human endeavor, uh, particularly in other cultures. What makes people tick? What makes them? What do they desire? What do they admire? What do they uh, want for their children. All of that stuff is central to success uh, in the field. So just an understanding kind of of what, like you said, what makes people tick, what drives people and what sort of drives us as a species and motivates us. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think it's important. I mean, you're, you're a lawman, so you know, you bump into people every day mm -hmm. who really don't think the same way you do. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's one of the reasons why the CIA really doesn't hire people right out of college. I mean, they do a little bit, but they don't really like to. Mm. And that's because when you're in college, uh, when you come out of college, you, you know a lot of stuff, but you, but it's always been structured and you've probably lived in an environment where everybody around you is sort of the same. I mean, not exactly the same, but sort of the same. And you really need to, uh, you need to see other parts of the world. You need to have good bosses and bad bosses. You need to have seen people who are maybe not full up villains, but you need to see people who, who are, have an edgy sense of ethics. All of that is essential if you're going to work in the CIA or for that matter in law enforcement. It's one of the reasons why the FBI won't take people until they've gotten, uh, you know, uh, at least one job or have been, you know, got out of college and went to the army or military. Mostly. And, you know, it was funny because when I first, years and years later, after serving abroad, I was working in California. And 
one of the things that I found out uh, was that the LA Sheriff's Office, Los Angeles County Sheriff's Office, required every sheriff to spend a full year working in the LA County prisons. Mm-hmm. And and I asked a sheriff, I was like, why? <laughs> and he said, because most of our young men and women who come to the to into law enforcement they don't know what villains look like. They don't know. They they don't know what criminals look like, and they've probably never been beaten up. And those two things will happen in the first year they're in. You know, doing the jail time, is they'll probably be beaten up, and they'll probably meet more than their ever share of villains. So that when they finally get out, and are on the street, they can. It, it'll be easier for them to recognize people who are just acting odd and people who are actual criminals mm-hmm. oh, that's very insightful very very interesting so you know you you got hired you went through the application process which you sort of you described already and then you got sent off to spy school now would that be what was referred to as the farm or camp x or what is that what, what does that look like what, what okay, you can so, tell me about it anyways. yeah i mean yeah so you go i mean there's there's plenty of i mean it's a it, my process, and I can't say what, what it is now, I have no idea, but my process was a year long, mm-hmm. okay? And it was a mix of, uh, of classroom training in, uh, in the greater Washington area. Mm-hmm. It was a mix of small interim assignments uh, inside CIA headquarters where they gave you little tasks to, to do. Uh, and mostly got a chance to look at you directly, right? How do you perform? Who are you? What? And then you go, and then at, at the end of that, then you went to the farm. Mm-hmm. And the farm is basically a school for tradecraft. That's what it does, right? It teaches you the basics of tradecraft. How how you com- how do you run? How do you do espionage? How do you run agents? How do you produce intelligence? How do you write up intelligence? And uh, how do you stay safe? How do you keep your agents safe? That's really, and then of course, you know, you, you know, so you graduate from the farm and uh, it, it, I've told more than one set of military folks, just like, and I'm sure it's true for law enforcement as well, just because you have graduated from the academy mm-hmm. doesn't mean you know anything. Mm-hmm. You, you you know you just don't know anything mm-hmm. what you what you've been given is a license that you will probably do no harm mm-hmm. and then when you get to your first field assignment that's when you actually learn how to do the job mm-hmm. uh in the in the u.s special forces community when guys show up at a team having just received their green beret and their special forces tab the team sergeant pulls them aside and says okay I don't want to really hear from you for a while. Mm-hmm. I want you to, you know, be on it. You're, you're going to be like, you know, you're number 12 of 12 and you're going to do what everybody else is doing. Try to copy them the best you can try to do their do work. And, uh, and over time you'll learn how to do this job. You've just been given nothing more than the, than the license to come to a team. Mm-hmm. That's sort of the same way in the CIA. Basically, you graduated from the farm. And what that does is it gives you a license to go to a station. Now, in my case, uh, 
what I did was I graduated from the farm and they immediately sent me to language school, which is not uncommon at all. I mean, a lot of, a lot of the folks that we have who are, who are in, uh, you know, brand new, you know, newly minted case officers don't have a language that's needed. They may have a language, uh, you know, like in my case is Spanish or maybe French, but you know, we need, we need hard languages. We need, Russian speakers, we mm -hmm. need Chinese speakers, we need Korean speakers, and in my case, oh, and we need Arabic uh, speakers, obviously, and in my case, we need Persian speakers. Mm -hmm. So they sent me to State Department to go and uh, study Afghan Persian. So that's what I did for a year. And with it being sort of still the 1980s, was this primarily because of the Afghan-Russian conflict that was going on, that they identified that as something that they required? Or was it just something that an instructor at the farm identified you for? Like, how does that uh, selection happen for you that's like, okay, you're going to go and learn this? Beats me. Okay. I mean, it absolutely beats me. I mean, certainly, certainly, you know, this is this is the time of the of the various and sundry Reagan wars, right? Mm -hmm. As they're referred to in books. So we were doing stuff all over the world. Uh, the CIA was doing stuff all over the world. I, you know, I, I was assigned. By, well, by this time, my wife and I are what are what's called a tandem couple. She was already working in the agency, and we were assigned to the to the Middle East. What was called Near East Division, which was, we used to joke about, doesn't even exist anymore the way it did then. But at the time, it was you know everything from Marrakesh to Bangladesh. Mm. Uh, and uh, so I show up, and I'm thinking I'm going to. I mean, my only experience abroad is in Egypt, so I'm thinking, well, maybe they'll send me to Arabic language school. Well, you know, who knows? And I show up, and they say, you know, uh, good news, you're going to language school. You know, I was like, okay, and uh, what am I going to study? And they're like thinking it's going to be Arabic. I mean, after all, it's the Middle East, right? Uh, and uh, they said, no, you're going to uh, you're going to study Afghan Persian. Uh, and by the way, uh, class started ten days ago, so you're late. Get to get down to State Department and get started. Um, and of course, when I you know, my colleagues who were going to the various and sundry other schools heard that I was studying, going to study Afghan Persian. They were like, oh, you're so doomed. You know, you're going to waste a year in Persian. You're going to go to a, you know, two-year assignment, and then you're going to be back here studying a language that counts, that matters. And uh, didn't work out that way. But that's that was their, their view, because they were going to Russian or Chinese or Korean uh, or Arabic. Uh, and uh, turned out that I was able to ride that horse for my whole career, hmm. changing the, you know, taking the little, I mean, obviously, you know, like I said, you've got different dialects of the same, but it, once you study Persian is an Indo-European language. And so once you've got the structure, then you can, you know, you can pick up the other language pretty, pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. So what did the rest of your career look like after that point leading up to sort of like, or I guess during like the pre 9-11 years? So uh, I did, um, my first assignment was working with Afghans uh, in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. So uh, that was the, you know, and, and that's got me, you know, built that, that network. From there, uh, I, I did... Uh, during the Gulf War, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, I was assigned 
uh, on long-term TDY to serve as a uh, what is called a, uh, an LNO, a, li a liaison officer. Uh, so I was a, a liaison, in, uh, intelligence liaison officer to multiple commands there. Uh, because at the time, this is, you know, again, it's a totally different world now. But at the time, there wasn't any real formalized way for strategic intelligence to be passed down to uh, commanders who were involved in operations. Operations, mm -hmm. there's military operations mean campaigns. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, not the same thing as case officers operations, right? I mean, these, these are campaigns, big campaign planning, you know, stuff that Norman Schwarzkopf and his, his generals were planning. Well, there wasn't any way to get strategic intelligence to them, mm -hmm. except to send out individuals who would carry in a lock bag intelligence to the guys, to these commanders. So I did that during the, the whole time period. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was interesting. I, I got a chance to, but I, people say, well, so you were in the Gulf War. I said, well, you know, when I started, I was in the front of the rear. And by the time the war was over, I was in the rear of the rear because of course, all the, all the, the, the forces had moved into Kuwait and I was still in, in Saudi Arabia. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I mean, I did get a chance to, you know, uh, have uh you know saddam hussein throw scud missiles at where i was living and not because he was trying to pick on me but because i happened to be living near uh the uh air base where you know the u.s air uh first attack fighter wing and and uh, bomber command were located mm -hmm. so uh that uh you know i, I mean the, the chances of being you know uh hurt that way i suppose were you know they weren't terribly high because the patriot missile batteries were good at what they did but nevertheless it's you know being shot at is never a good thing mm -hmm. and do you find that that uh, period of time you know really allowed you to kind of hone in on your skill sets and sort of like we talked about how you know you arrive from the farm to an area or to a team and you don't really know anything at that point in time this was a really good time to build experience to practice your craft to develop your role as a case officer uh during this period did you feel you were able to well uh, when i was in, well when i was in in my first assignment certainly uh but that that year in desert shield desert storm i was a uh was not being i wasn't being a case officer right mm -hmm. i was being a a uh, an intelligence officer at the level that you know might have might just as easily have been an intelligence officer inside you know the j2 command cell the difference was i had an intelligence node that the j2 command cell didn't have and so i would you know pull up the daily stuff and deliver it. I mean, so no, my, my, my work at that point in time was, and I was also doing, I was, I won't say I was exclusively doing that because I was also working with the military counterintelligence folks across the board, army, Navy, air force, Marines, or, uh, and also with the Saudi service, because we were convinced that, you know, Saddam was going to send, terrorists down to disrupt operations well it turns out 
he didn't he wasn't very good at his his security service was not very good because they were mostly cronies and so they never really got down to cause any trouble at all but you know maybe that was because we set up a, a, an effective network uh you know i i really don't know but that was the other thing that i did was you know that was my first experience working on the counterintelligence side of the world mm. Uh, and uh, and counterterrorism in that sense, because, yes, it was an intelligence collection threat, but it was also, you know, a, a bombing threat, uh, you know, but it turned out that we either we were really much better than we thought or that or the Iraqis were much worse than we thought. I'm not sure which I, I would not try to, to judge that historians will figure that out. Hmm. So, you know, moving ahead to obviously a, a very defining moment in, in, you know, across the United States, the allied countries, North America, the world in general, nine 11, right. How did that look from a CIA perspective, um, including the opinions and, and the, the views of Osama bin Laden at that time and what happened next for you? Obviously it's been documented and we're going to get into details about it, but you know, I want to hear your own perspective on what that looked like immediately following and then what kind of happened next for you and for the agency following 9-11. Okay. So, so let's, let's cover first of all, the 10 years between 1991 and 2001. Mm -hmm. uh, during that time period, I had multiple assignments, field assignments where I became progressively more experienced not only as a case officer but as a manager of case officers and more importantly uh as a manager and, and as a case officer who were not stationed in one location but actually traveling all over the world doing stuff so i was uh, and, and that was what i did and that's you know what i did with my teams as well so that was when I was first, uh, you know, I first got exposed to Tajik. That was the first time that I was exposed in a counterterrorism context for uh, Iranian Persian. And so you, you slowly but surely I become, you know, you're obviously if you if you're not even if, you know, if you're even a little successful, you're going to be promoted over time. And so soon I'm actually by the time. 9-11 happens, I'm uh, managing a couple of flyaway teams in, in California. Again, mm -hmm. we're in California, not because we work in California, but because we have great airports in California and working and focusing on the Asia Pacific region. My teams were counterterrorism teams. Mm -hmm. We were, by that time, we were already looking at uh, both Sunni extremism, but also Shia, uh, Shia terrorism, specifically Hezbollah. So, uh, you know, and we're going after, we're going after, remember, we're not, we're doing two different things. We're working with local services to disrupt operations uh, that the terrorists might be doing. And we're also recruiting penetrations of those services so that we will have foreknowledge of their plans and intentions. Mm -hmm. So, so that's really, you know, from, that's what I did for 10 years. 
progressively working from just being, a, you know, a case officer meeting these bad guys to running a few case officers meeting these bad guys to running 20 case officers meeting these bad guys, you know? So, um, and, and throughout that time period, like several of my colleagues from back in the eighties, I was just too stubborn not to keep working Afghans. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had I had language skills. There's there's Afghans all over. There's an Afghan diaspora all over the world, and so wherever I was, I could always almost always either with a local service or on my own find at least one Afghan source to run who might very well have access to uh, the terrorist target. Mm-hmm. So I, I was by that time like. There was about six of us who, you know, had, and not all of them were on my team. There were six of us, you know, who had been together in the 80s and now we're still working together on these targets wherever we were. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, 9 11 happens. I'm in California. Uh, As soon as we hear it, we're on the radio, Lisa and I are on the radio. We're, We're listening to the radio going to work. Because right, we're in California, so we're three, you know, we're we're three hours behind what's going on, and um, you know, as as we hear it on the radio, Lise goes, you know, I know you're going to be going pretty soon. And, I mean, because she'd worked with me on this on the Middle East front for years as well, so she knew there's only a cadre, a small cadre of all of us who were fluent in language, still had contacts with the Afghans. And, uh, and that's the way it worked. And mm-hmm. so it took, of course, I'm on the West Coast. So, you know, for several days, uh, there are no airplanes flying. Uh, and so I don't get back to Washington. I mean, get the call and, uh, and I'm ordered back to Washington, but I don't get back to Washington until um, I think it was the 16th or the 17th of September. And uh I get back and I, you know, I know the office and I know the guys that I'm going to see and I go down to see the office and I realize uh, most of the guys that I knew were already gone. They, they were already, you know, headed downrange. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was the first team that is described by Gary Schroen in his book, First In. Uh, often called jawbreaker. The truth is, is that was a sort of a generic term for all of us. But it, his his team is, has been called over time the jawbreaker team. And, uh, you know, I was sad. I mean, I was sad that I wasn't going to go with those guys because I'd spent 10 years trying to, to trying to build that network. I'd actually met with some of the guys that they were going to start working with. And I was certain that instead I was going to be the, you know, the Afghan guy that was going to be in the bowels of headquarters, you know, receiving their traffic and, and trying to make sense of it. Well, didn't turn out that way. Right. Hmm. Didn't turn out that way. Um, the, uh, within a couple of days, the, the management said, no, no, we're, 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 we're building some other teams. And, you know, you're going to be the, the one that's going to be running that first one in behind enemy lines. Uh, so 
that's what you know my team was that's why it was called alpha mm -hmm. it's not because uh, of anything other than um the uh it, basically all of the teams that went behind the lines were in alpha you know alphabetic order so mm -hmm. there was alpha bravo charlie delta echo foxtrot golf mm -hmm. uh so um so that's the way it, it it ran so then the you know i was i had you know really the good fortune of having a this was a super boutique team i mean mm -hmm. i was uh i was a, a team leader for a bunch of guys who were just superior individuals my uh partner in this uh alex was just uh, you know an amazing american hero uh in you know for years i mean he had been in he'd been in special forces he had been in a tier unit uh and you know the in special in jsoc he had you know he and he had now was working in the agency and so he assembled uh most of the team and i got on a plane and flew to tashkent uh and the reason for that was because that was where we were going to launch from and that was where the U.S. Army had set up their launch as well. But, you know, the thing about it is people, I mean, I, again, I, let's just roll back a little bit. What people assume is somehow that it's like magic. You know, the, the CIA has got magic. You, you, we're, we're like firemen, you know. Uh, uh, you know, they, we get the call, the alarm goes off, we slide down the fire pole, we jump in our trucks and off we go. And, of course, what people don't understand about firemen is it's years and years of experience and it's constant training and it's experience on how to do the job. Well, it's the same thing with the CIA. We could do things in September and October of 2001 because we'd been working on the target since 1980. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, continuously on the target. Now, not a lot of people because we don't have a lot of people, but continuously we're, you know, persistence of presence is what it's called and the rest of the government really wasn't interested in afghanistan after the soviets left but there's a whole bunch of us who were and so well a bunch there's you know a dozen of us who were and stuck so, with it can you kind of like like one of the things that really surprised me because obviously i was i was a child when afghanistan and 9 11 was happening like i didn't really get to you know learn more about it until later into my adult life. So I wasn't really super familiar with everything that was happening at the time. Right. But one thing is I've gotten older and I've learned more and more about the conflict. I've learned more and more about uh, Afghanistan and the way it kind of functions is like it, it sort of is, but sort of isn't a country. Like it's sort of like you have these fiefdoms and, and sort of almost like regions and kingdoms and like the, the borders of it as a country are more defined by the surrounding countries around it than by it itself and then you have the dynamics of the taliban and al-qaeda and like sort of what creates this perfect storm for so much uh terrorist activity and, and that sort of thing and and you know you have these different warlords and and you know characters like dostum for example that you know we can talk about kind of going further on into the story of what happened but like what is it in in your opinion that or, or I guess like what is your sort of best explanation for what Afghanistan was at the time that this was happening? Okay. Well, first of all, Eric, you've, you've hit the nail on the head. Afghanistan is not a country. Okay. It's we, we in the West talk about nation states, mm -hmm. right. And, and nation states 
uh, imply that there is a unified national viewpoint mm -hmm. and then there is also a state government right mm -hmm. there has well as far as at least it, since 1960 something uh afghanistan is not a it's not a nation it's it is a conglomeration of multiple ethnic groups mm -hmm. most of whom barely can they don't share the same language they don't share the same culture they don't share the same religion uh in fact even you know even at the at the more you know granular level people say well of course it's the you know there's there's these these pushtun tribes well yeah but the pushtun tribes of the south speak a language that is on that that people the pushtun tribes in the north don't understand mm. so yeah you you're absolutely right it is not a country i mean it's a country in the sense that national geographic has a map of afghanistan right mm -hmm. and it's got a, it had a flag and now it has a flag and uh but it is ethnically i mean it's only in the it's only really in the 20th century that it even became the borders were even established mm -hmm. uh i mean for the longest time you know a good chunk of you know western afghanistan was persia mm -hmm. uh a good chunk of of southern afghanistan was this sort of no man's land that was associated with the baluch tribes uh, it was it was really only until the late 19th century that the British established a border, it was called the Durand Line, that they drew that said tribes on, you know, on the on the east side of the border, they're going to be in British India. And those tribes that are on the west side of this border are going to be in Afghanistan. But of course, as you know, they is an arbitrary line, and the truth is, is that they drew a line right through bunches of different tribes mm -hmm. who had, you know, family on both sides of the border. So, so what you do uh, within the context of this interplay is you have to understand that nobody. I mean, the only person I've ever there, I've only met two people who thought of them in my life who thought of themselves uh, as Afghans. And, and the first one was uh, Ahmed Shah Massoud. I mean, he really, when I, I got a chance to talk to him in, the, in just in, in 2000, well, actually 1999, uh, and he really thought of himself as an Afghan and hoped to make an Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. And then much later, post 9-11, uh, the guy that I that I personally met who was an Afghan, who thought of himself as an Afghan, is Amrullah Saleh. And Amrullah Saleh was, was a, an aide to Massoud. He became the head of the National Directorate of Security, the Intelligence and Security Service, and was the, one of the last vice presidents of Afghanistan, right before the Taliban took over. He thought of himself as an Afghan. But it took a... It took for both of them, it took a gestalt shift because they're both Tajiks mm -hmm. and they're both Panjshiris. So, you know, Tajiks are an, is an ethnic group. Panjshir is a place. <clears throat> so 
what you do <coughs> if you are in the midst of trying to understand Afghanistan is you have to understand that different parts of Afghanistan are really run by different groups of people. Mm -hmm. uh, in, you know, after 9-11, uh, there's a there's a fairly large number of ethnic groups north of the Hindu Kush who were more than willing to fight against the Taliban because the Taliban had been genocidal. They had been just absolutely flat out killing men, women, and kids everywhere north of the Hindu Kush. Hmm. You know, they just, you know, they'd come into villages and I saw them. I mean, I saw these pictures. Well, actually, I drove through them. I, as an archaeologist, I thought these, these these wrecks of towns were like remnants of Alexander the Great. The guy was like, "No, no, this was this was a this was a village like a year ago." Taliban came through. They blew up the buildings. They took. They set them on fire. They took uh, when the fire was out. After they'd killed all the men, women, and kids, they took the house timbers so that you could never build them again. And all that's left are these adobe bricks that have been washed away in the winter. That was so. When you had these other ethnic groups who were who were willing, it wasn't about that they want. They were fighting for Afghanistan. They were fighting to get their own piece of Afghanistan liberated from these genocidal maniacs. Uh, and so that was, and you know, I mean, it, it is, I mean, genocide isn't just exclusively the, the, the badge of the Taliban. There's, you know, there's, I was involved years and years ago in the Balkans and you can see what, you know, there was genocide in the Balkans. There's lots of genocide in, Af in Africa. There, there's plenty of genocide in Asia. It's just, uh, you know, when, when a, an ethnic or a cultural or a religious group decide that everybody who is not us are not people, mm -hmm. then it's easy to just start killing these not people. Mm -hmm. So what, you, what do you do? What do you do? You pick, a, you pick groups that are, uh, that are potential allies who, who want to fight for their land they are already resisting as much as they can uh, against the taliban overlords and uh they uh you help them and you mm -hmm. do your best to make sure that they get a chance to succeed mm -hmm. and so and that's really the story of i mean that's really the story of the fall of 2001 the taliban were spread very thin across the north uh, and uh, and the truth is, is that the the Taliban themselves, the the hard the hardcore Taliban, the, the true Kandahari Kandahar is a place in southern Afghanistan. The true Kandahari Taliban, they, you know, what they did was they hired young men uh, who were Pashtuns who had no life, really, had no jobs. And, and they basically said to them, here's, uh, you know, here is uh, your Kalashnikov, and here is your Toyota Hilux, and here is your monthly pay. Mm -hmm. And what you are authorized to do is bully anybody who isn't part of your group. 
and, uh, you know, and bully them as much as you want because you're doing a righteous thing for religion. Well, the different, what happened in the fall of 2001 is, you know, these young men who were all in as far as killing goes, didn't, weren't all in as far as dying goes. Mm -hmm. They, they, they were more than willing to kill. They didn't, they didn't like the idea of all of a sudden they were going to die. And so they just evaporated. The Taliban army just evaporated. And, uh, and it evaporated across. Now, of course it it evaporated after a a mix of, uh, you know, the, the, the Northern tribal resistance, the, our work, which was primarily financial and also supplies, and then the special forces work, which provided some guidance, but mostly provided an, a link between the air and the ground so they could call in the United States and allied air power. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden, the Taliban, these Taliban kids who had been used to, you know, fighting uh and killing folks who had rakes and, you know, uh, tools, you know, farming tools, all of a sudden realized that their pals were being completely, you know, obliterated by United States and allied air power. Mm -hmm. So they were like, no, this is, I didn't sign up for this. And they just disappeared. Can you talk a little bit about like these Uzbek fighters that you were, you were dealing with in the North uh, in alpha team and like sort of the, the difference in, cause you talk about how the, the CIA was able to, and you were able to kind of provide a lot of value with regards to tools and supplies to them, but to them, the tools and supplies that you're providing them must've been otherworldly, right? I mean, these guys were fighting on horseback. Well, okay. I mean, but, but you know, the, the kinds of tools we're providing them because it, it's foolish to provide, advanced equipment Mm -hmm. to people who don't understand advanced equipment. So Mm -hmm. our, what we provided was exactly the same stuff they needed, just more of it. Kalashnikovs, light machine guns, heavy machine guns, ammunition, uh, and, and also the money to be able to pay uh, folks to work, to fight for them. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, the money to buy off uh, some of these, I mean, there's a British term for it called levy that you would, you know, you would draft guys, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, to fight for you. Well, the, the Taliban drafted guys and suddenly we could outbid the Taliban. Plus we had the, you know, air power to <coughs> give them an opportunity to, to choose between a small stipend from us or turning into goo. Mm-hmm. Right. It didn't take didn't didn't take long for them to figure it out. Mm-hmm. The Uzbek and, you know, we weren't just work with Uzbek. Right. We were working with Uzbeks. We were working with Hazara Shia, mm-hmm. who were truly the people who had been who had been the, the focus of the Taliban genocide. And we were working with Tajiks as well. So we were the our biggest challenge, my team's biggest challenge was to make sure that the three leaders of these three ethnic groups fought the Taliban and didn't fight each other. Because mm-hmm. before the Taliban, they had been rivals mm-hmm. for regional power. So 
what you do is you just, you know, explain to them, we're willing to help you. We're all in, but we're all in as long as you work together. The day you start to work against each other, we're done. Mm-hmm. We, you know, uh, we're done. And we'll, we'll revert back to the way it was before. And, and they're like, we don't want it to be the way it was before. Right, exactly. So let's work together. Once the Taliban are gone, if you want to cooperate or don't want to cooperate, that's entirely your business. We're not here to tell you how to do your, you know, how to run your country. Uh, at least that's what we said at the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so we were able to get these guys to collaborate at best and be neutrals with each other in their worst days, mm-hmm. which is pretty, pretty good. I mean, it's just pretty good when you figure that we were like, you know, spacemen who came out of the sky and, mm-hmm. you know, within, within seven days, we've got three different guys who have never talked to each other, talking to each other and collaborating. Mm-hmm. And so that initial work that you guys did together and pushing through the north into sort of like central Afghanistan or, or claiming the north of Afghanistan <clears throat> seemed like it was especially in those early days quite successful um what sort of happened you know near the end of November in 2001 well uh, the important thing to remember about all of this was that again we established pretty quickly what you know what we could do what we couldn't do what the taliban could do what they couldn't do and uh mostly what they did was retreat once Mm -hmm. they realized that they were facing the you know the the force of american and and allied manpower right mostly brits Uh, eventually there were other allies but at the time it was us and the brits so What happened is, you know, we, and I'll put myself right in the center of this, totally misjudged the degree of commitment on the part of the Kandahari element and the Al-Qaeda element that was left. Mm. And here's what happened. Um, so the, the Taliban and the Al-Qaeda, the rump Al-Qaeda element, was was surrounded in Kunduz, and uh, the Afghans have a not just not just the the Pushtuns, but the Afghans as a cultural trait. The Pushtuns call it Nanawate, but as a cultural trait, the Afghans believe that if you say "I surrender," you are really surrendering. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, and that's why we were able to flip guys going up to and through Missouri Sharif, because they would say, not only do I want to surrender, but I'll fight with you. I can see you're on the winning side. This is a good side, but I want to be on the winning side, too. What what the the hardcore Kandaharis decided was to do a false surrender to violate all of those that honor code that they that they live by and whether or not to this day i have no idea whether it was with the advice certainly it was with the consent 
but I don't know if it was with the advice of the Al Qaeda. I believe it was, you know, in in the uh, in the agency, we make a big distinction between what you think and what you know, mm-hmm. right? What you know is based on some kind of intelligence. What you think is what you believe, what you analyze based on it. I believe that Al Qaeda told the uh, that the, the the remnants of the Taliban leadership that. Uh, if you could kill all the Americans, you will end up winning again, just like when we killed all the Americans in uh, Mogadishu, and then the Americans quit, and then you know the, they left. Well, it's that's that's the Al Qaeda version of the Mogadishu story. I mean, the truth is is that they didn't kill all the Americans, and there's a whole bunch of uh, you know, Somalis that all that lot, lots more Somalis died in that than, than, than Americans. But nevertheless, I believe that that's what, what they were. Uh, they told Mullah Fossil, it doesn't matter. Mullah Fossil snuck into Mazari Sharif and he met with both uh, Dostam and Muhammad Atta. He wasn't going to meet with the, the, the Shia because the Shia would have killed him. I mean, they just would have, I mean, he, he was the one, he was the leader of the Taliban genocide that had basically destroyed an entire community in Mazari Sharif that was Shia. I mean, just flattened a whole part of the city, thousands of, of Shia. You'll, you'll periodically hear people talk about, you know, uh, mass graves north of Mazari Sharif, and they think that it was done by Atta or Dostam or whatever. No, it was the mass graves that were, that were created when they when the, the Taliban just took a, a, a quarter of the city of Mazar Sharif and killed everybody. They had to put the bodies someplace, so they did a mass grave. Yeah. Anyhow, Fazl came in and said to both of these guys separately, "Here's the here's the deal. Uh, I want to surrender. I'm from Kandahar. I don't really want to be here anymore. Uh, everybody who works all the all, what's left of us, we're all Kandaharis." We want to go home. We'll we'll surrender. You can take our weapons. Just fly us home. We're done. Uh, and the uh, and the foreign fighters that we've got, uh, that's up to you. But we would recommend you fly them to Pakistan, and then they can go wherever need be. Mm-hmm. Well, and then Fazl said, or you cannot accept this deal and you'll have to fight house to house in Kunduz. And you will, ru- you, we will make sure that this, the city of Kunduz is a ruin when you finally get, when you finally kill us all. Well, you know, by this time, Dostam and Atta are both as much politicians within their own ethnic group as they are military leaders. And they do not want to be part of a you know a Stalingrad, right? I mean they they just don't want any or now a, a, a Bakhmut, right? They they don't want any part of that. Uh, they don't have the soldiers to be part of it, quite honestly. But anyhow, they don't want to be part of it because they don't want to be the guy who's 
called, you know, the butcher of Kunduz. Mm -hmm. So they accept it and they think this is going to be great. I mean, you know, an Afghan says he's going to surrender. He's going to surrender. So they went out uh, to, to Kunduz with a very small contingent, uh, two SF teams, a, a, an SF command element, uh, two of us, myself and uh, another officer. That was it. You know, I mean, it was like maybe 20 Americans and they probably had no more than total between Atta and Dostam, no more than maybe a hundred friendly troops because it was supposed to be a, you know, a, you know, surrender and welcome back to the fold sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Well, meanwhile, uh, just before we left, a bunch of a truck, several truckloads of foreign fighters show up in Mazar Sharif, and, and their argument is, we don't trust the Kandaharis. We know they're just going to throw us to the wolves here. If we show up in Mazar Sharif, by this time the press is there, you know, if we show up, we'll at least have a chance of not being killed outright because. Nobody, none of you foreigners, and certainly none, nobody else really wants to be uh, seen as committing genocide. So they show up, and the, and the, the Shia, because they're the only ones left in the city, they put them in Kalai Jangi, which is the fortress, because it's, they don't, there isn't any other, there isn't a prison around, but there is a fort where, you know, obviously, you know, if you've got high walls, a fort can be easily an open an open prison just as easily as it can be a fort protecting you. Mm-hmm. Well, of course it was, it was a complete, it was, it was a deception operation. And what happened was that uh, the Afghans, uh, once they saw that the, that fighters had turned in their rifles, they never thought to search the Afghans and more importantly, with the foreign fighters, the foreign fighters were even more perfidious. What they had done is they had taken uh, bandages, soaked them in somebody's blood, taped hand grenades and pistols to their chest, and then wrapped the bloody bandages around their chest. Well, okay. After the fact, now we know that you always check 100%, but you can imagine an Afghan looking at a, a bloody bandage and not wanting to tear that bandage off and have the guy die, right? Mm-hmm. So so that's how, so the plan was to kill, you know, some of us in Kunduz, kill some of us in Kalai Jangi, and then there was also a flying column that Fossil was going to send from the north and raid the rest of the city and take over Mazar Sharif again and, you know, hit, reboot the whole battlefield. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, what happened, which is something that the, they didn't have any kind of coordination, really. They, they knew that they wanted to do something at a certain time, it was going to be at dark you know, of that first first day, but the foreign fighters started to fight early, perhaps because they thought that they could do the job. Or perhaps, we don't know why. We just don't know why. But when that happened, because I had communication 
with my guys, with the team was split in multiple directions. And after all, we still were, were, you know, our responsibility for, you know, we had 12 guys, eight when we started, uh, was five Afghan provinces. So, you know, I was in Kunduz with one guy. We had four guys in Mazar-e-Sharif, so that's six. And then we had another six spread out over several other provinces. So I, you know, uh, get up on the SATCOM and, and say to my guys in Mazar, hey, just want to let you know we're here. It doesn't look quite right to me. I don't know what's going on, but, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to be careful, but at least we're physically here. And uh, the guys there said, uh, boss, this is, you know, this is bad. I mean, there's a fight going on. Mike is Mike is missing in action. Uh, Dave is around, but we're not sure where. Uh, and it's it's like a serious gunfight going on in the fort. Well, at that point, I realized that this was the whole thing was a sham. So I got uh, together with the special forces contingent, right, the thirty plus guys, and with the two commanders and and said, you know, this is, this is not a surrender. This is an ambush trying to kill all of us. And we need to stop this because at this point, there's a whole bunch of Taliban fighters that are walking through uh, basically what's called in the military, a passage alliance, surrendering, quote unquote, surrendering. But of course, they're not surrendering. They're just trying to get close enough to us to kill us. So uh, that was stopped. And uh, the, the special forces folks were able to call in AC-130 gunships. And that night, when the Taliban were about to attack us uh, in our really quite you know, minimal positions, the, the gunships just took care of the Taliban, as they had been doing. Well, we didn't really use gunships much. We were using fast movers uh, and bombers for most of the fight. But so the Taliban had never seen gunships before. They didn't know anything about what was going on. So it uh, solved that. The next morning, we, uh, uh, my, Scotty and I drove back to uh, Mazar-e-Sharif. And then uh, we spent two days in uh, Kalai trying to suppress the suppress the resistance there. And in the long run, I mean, it, we lost Mike, of course, but in the long run, it was the Afghans, a uh, mix of Afghan, the Shia and Uzbeks, who solved the problem. They progressively pushed the these foreign fighters slowly but surely into a single building that was in Kalai Jangi, and then eventually no longer in the ground floor, but in the basement. And then, uh, you know, a very clever, I mean, I suppose they could have just done horrible things, but instead what they did is they brought in a fire truck. And remember, this is the end of November. And they filled that, that basement up to the chest of these fighters. And of course, November didn't take long before they were hypothermic and uh, were no longer resistant. And they were brought up and then, uh, you know, secured. So that's sort of the the, the gunfight. Hmm. Wow. What was that experience like for you? How do you feel about that experience after the fact that you've had time to, you know, analyze it and think about it and, you know, kind of work through the thoughts and emotions of that? Well, of course, you know, I, 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 
how could you not as a team leader not regret losing a teammate, right? Uh, I don't, I mean, I was, when we first got back, uh, Alex and I uh, went in with a with an SF team uh, to, into the, in the middle of the firefight uh, that same night. And we were able to bring AC-130 gunships into there. And that's uh, uh, when uh, uh, Mark Mitchell won the Distinguished Service Cross for, for his, uh, his, his work there. Six of us on the parapet watching and talking and doing all that stuff. Anyhow, uh, it was a, an unfortunate, I mean, it's a tragic, I guess it's the right word. It was a tragic ending to an exceptionally successful mission. Now, uh, a, a man uh, who just recently passed away, Admiral Calland, was there with us at the time. He was now the senior special forces guy, and I was like the next ranking guy. So he and I worked together quite a bit. And after the fight was all over and we, we were sending Mike's remains home with part of the team, he pulled me aside and he said, you know, JR, um, I've been with the SEALs for my whole career from the time I left the Naval Academy. And he had been on multiple SEAL teams to include SEAL Team 6 and all kinds of combat operations in the 1980s. And he said, you know, the, the reality is, is that, that, uh, and I knew this from the military, the, 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 there's sort of a Grim Reaper's book that tells you, you know, if you're going to be involved in this kind of operation, you're going to sustain mm. 10% casualties. You're going to sustain, or you're going to, this type of operation, you're going to be, you're going to sustain 20% casualties. He said, the reality is, is that the reason the United States government sends teams like yours and mine into combat is because when we sustain 10% casualties, we lose a person, an important person, a person that we cared about and we admired and all of that, but just one. If you have a, a, an infantry battalion of 600 guys and you lose 10%, that's 60 men. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if it's a brigade with, you know, uh, with three of those battalions, now you've lost 180 men on just one opera, one night. Mm -hmm. He says, so, you know, this is, it is the nature of our trade that it's not risk-free. Now that didn't help me when I met with Shannon and talked to all of that. There's no good way to process the loss of a, of a friend and a teammate in what was in fact a, something that we might have been able to at least think through, but it was so different from anything that was culturally consistent with Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. I mean, that uh, I'm not sure how we could have prevented what happened. Mm -hmm. We're just lucky that we didn't lose more people because, and the only reason we lost, we didn't lose more people is because we had tactical communications. So that when, because if they had done all three of these, uh, all three of these ambushes at the same time simultaneously, the, the result would have been much more horrific than it was.
how do you feel about um you know i mean whether it's it's an operation like like your operation or something like you know you see in like zero dark 30 or you know the the the, the operation to kill osama bin laden things like that like how do you feel about um things like books being written movies coming out stuff like that that talks about what you did and sort of the the representation and the portrayal of how things happen and the people involved, knowing that you were there firsthand. For example, leading being like the book First Casualty, which is, you know, my primary source of information kind of going into this interview and things like that. What is your impression of that? Well, I think that, I mean, first of all, America needs, America and the world needs to know. And if the books are well written and they're well sourced and they, and the authors cooperate with the services and with the agency, I think it's important to do. It's not, you know, when you're in a combat operation, it's hardly secret, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's, it, it, is, it is hardly secret. Now, once it becomes a movie, you have to accept the fact that uh, there's going to be a, a degree of drama inserted into the story that, doesn't exist because the truth is is that in the espionage world Mm -hmm. we don't have many gunfights we don't have uh many car chases uh you know we we don't have very many fistfights uh mostly what we have is we are sitting down in a darkened room uh, you know, with a candle in the case of Afghanistan or with a you know in a hotel room talking to a guy convincing him that it is in his best interest to help us that's not much drama mm-hmm. that's that's really not going to work uh i think first casually and uh before that doug stanton's book 12 strong well it was first called horse soldiers but when it became a movie it became re retitled 12 strong i think they're they're well written books um you know there there's Stephen Cole wrote a bunch of, of, of books that are that are that are excellent. You know, Kill Cullen, David Kill Cullen's written a bunch of books. As long as they are uh, based on solid research, and they aren't throwing, you know, giving away state secrets, then I don't see any problem with that because I do think America and the world needs to know how these things work and how they happen so they can make a judgment on whether or not uh, what we did was worthwhile. Mm -hmm. Uh, It will be, I'm certain it's going to be years before we've sorted out the entire 20 years in Afghanistan and how it, you know, whether it was a good idea or a bad idea you know, I wasn't involved in anything past 2007, right? That's when I retired from the from the agency. So I can't really speak past about that and, and won't. I mean, I think it's important to remember if you're not in the know, you you really shouldn't speak because you really don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it, the world is a complicated place. The intelligence world the world of espionage and covert action are exceptionally complicated. And if you don't, if you don't, one, if you don't know, because you weren't read into a project and two, if you're not allowed to speak, then don't. Mm -hmm. That's all. Mm -hmm. 
knowing how Afghanistan turned out uh, with the recent withdrawal and things like that, how do you feel about the work that was done there that you were involved in? Well, remember, I, I can't say why what was going on, uh, mm. you know, in the last, you know, the what I think was certain was we were for for at least almost twenty years we were able to revive a bunch of different cultural entities that had simply been people who had simply been uh, under the under the knife of the Taliban. So so I think at least for you know for what we did in two thousand one. I think it was a righteous cause, probably more righteous than most people think, because it wasn't just about capturing bin Laden. I mean, there certainly was that's the, the, the reason for it. But the Taliban were critically important to the attack on, on America, if nothing else, by providing major facilities for the Al Qaeda guys to to be. But more importantly, once you're there on the ground and you're seeing the the incredible genocide that they were that they were committing in you know in the name of islam which is just wrong i have no problem with what we did in in 2001 and we did it with uh you know the loss of mike that's always a tragedy i mean i i can't say that it was it was painless but I think Mike would have been the first one to say that it was worth it to give because he was the one that was the closest to the Shia. It's one of the reasons why he was in Mazar-e-Sharif because it was the Shia that were there at the time. So, you know, I think he would have probably said it was who knows what, what, you know, I mean, it's not like you can choose that, but it was something that for sure, once we realized what, what they had been doing, it was worth the fight. Mm -hmm. After the events of Mazari Sharif, what happened next? Because my understanding was the initial uh, 2001 operation was 90 days. So there is still a little bit more time that you spent in country. And then what happened after that? Well, of course. Uh, so I, I stayed in country uh, not a whole lot longer, uh, about three more weeks. I mean, you don't leave until you're relieved in place, right? Mm -hmm. So there was another team. Half my team went back with Mike's remains mm -hmm. uh, and were there for Mike's funeral and his burial at Arlington. Uh, but I couldn't go. I mean, I, I was a team leader. I mean, there was just there was just a ton of stuff that needed to be done. So until there was until we were relieved, there was uh, then you know we so then after that I went back to to my flyaway team um, for a period of time, about eighteen months, and then went back uh, again uh, to the region uh, to work on another you know some other projects and then uh, in 04 at uh, the instruction of headquarters i finally went back to headquarters and then worked um in uh, on the you know at sort of the strategic level uh, for counterterrorism, and i made multiple trips then during that time period but they were short multiple trips to afghanistan uh, pakistan and iraq uh during uh, those last three years that i was in service and then uh, retired in the spring of 2007. Okay. And what happened for you after your retirement from the CIA? And what did it feel like for you to sort of leave working for the agency? Oh, it's very hard. 
I mean, mm-hmm. no, it's it's very hard when you've done something for 22 years. Uh, the good news is that I had a, a number of different uh, training opportunities. So I got a chance to do uh, mostly military training opportunities. Uh, and that was very satisfying uh, training. Remember in oh, seven, eight, nine, ten, 10, uh, you know, we had military was was conducting operations both in Afghanistan, but also in Iraq. And so I got a chance to train. I was doing work for, uh, for the U.S. Army uh, Intelligence School at, down in Fort Huachuca in Arizona, as well as working with special forces. Uh, and so got a chance to, to train another generation of, uh, of young men and women who, who were going to be intelligence officers in the style, not in the style of staff intelligence officers, but in the, but in the world of uh, actually conducting human operations, espionage. So uh, it was very satisfying. Uh, and then that's, you know, narrowed out over the years. I mean, it's just, you would expect it to uh, for lots of different reasons, mostly because once you have an experienced cadre of uniformed officers and NCOs who are, have already done the trade, they should be the ones training the next generation Mm-hmm. of of you know uh soldiers sailors airmen and marines who are in the trade so i you know, at this point uh i i don't know that i'll ever be working uh, in training with them again i mean i would do it if asked but i i honestly think that the military rightly so looks at it and says well we've got experienced officers now we've got people who have done a dozen years in the field why shouldn't they be the ones passing their experience on rather than some geezer uh, who, you know, was in the cold war? Hmm. Well, I mean, I think there's still a lot, I think there's still a lot of experience there too, geezer or not <laughs> to pass along and to a lot of insight, you know, and there was a different style of espionage, I suppose, from that era than necessarily what people are doing now in the modern era. What would you think? Like, that experience garnered during the cold war might be somewhat different from that, which was, and maybe now more relevant again, that we're dealing with Russia as a, as a, as a bit of a global. You know, I can't, I I mean, honestly can't say, I mean, I certainly there's, there are, I had a friend one time that who said, when I was talking about this, he said, look, it's like football in football. There's always going to be blocking. There's always going to be tackling, you know? I mean, so yeah, I'm sure that there's stuff from the cold war that, that is, absolutely practical today but uh you know that's for somebody else to worry about i think Mm. at this point for sure for sure so you know one of the things that we we've talked about and alluded to and i'd obviously i'd love to get into right now is talking about your own books that you've written as an author i know that's something that uh you know you're very passionate about and you've you've had a a quite a couple series of books that you've written and um you know they've been hailed as being uh at least like the Mike four series has been hailed as being very um, accurate to depicting, I suppose, espionage and CIA work. So can you talk a little bit about that? Right. Well, I mean, I started writing, uh, I mean, I, of course, in the, in the, in the world of a case officer, you're writing all the time, mm-hmm. right? You're, you're, you know, I mean, you collect the, you collect the intelligence and you'd have to turn it into something that people can read. But uh, I had uh, always you know, enjoyed just sort of scribbling on, on other ideas. And it was, I was, 
what started the Mike Four series, because um, in, in Mike Four, the main character of Mike Four is a military intelligence officer who is also a below the knee amputee. Mm-hmm. And uh, so her, uh, she ha- she and she's also the daughter and granddaughter of CIA officers. So she's she's got a lot of baggage. Uh, and, um, but what started, what created Mike four was when I was training at Fort Huachuca, I was working with, you know, each time I'd work one-on-one with students at the end, when they were done and I would give them their evaluation, I would always say to them, you know, well, what, you, you know, what's your two cents on all this? And I met, a, you know, I had one of my guys, uh, it was, I mean, I worked with men and women, but this was a guy. And he said, well, you know, it, it's, it was hard. And I was like, dude, you know, it, it's supposed to be hard. That's the whole point. Mm-hmm. And then he said, no, no, you don't understand. And then he rolled up his pants leg and he was a BTK. And I had hauled this guy all over woods and arroyos and all kinds of places in, you know, in, in Eastern and Southern Arizona and uh, had never known. I had no idea that he was a BTK. I mean, I, and I, it was at that point that I realized that that story needed to be told. Now, obviously, I couldn't tell it I mean, about him. He was going to, going on to become a intelligence officer, probably undercover. Who knows? But uh, but I could certainly tell the story of a person who was willing to be severely injured and stay in the fight. Hmm. And so that's the story of Mike Four. I mean, Mike, Mike Four is her call sign, right? Uh, so we, you know, we, and then we take her and once it expands, then it becomes a story about the family and all of their connections in the world of espionage and the Cold War and then the counterterrorism war. Uh, and uh, so now we're at, I'm writing uh, Mike 4 number eight right now. Um, so Mike 4, one, two, and three are basically a, it's a trilogy. Mike, Mike the fourth book in the Mike 4 series is actually a prequel and it's set in World War II mm. where it talks about a, uh, her grandfather and his operations in both Europe and in uh, the China Burma India theater, and uh, then the uh, so that's that's book four, five, six, and seven are moving away from uh, the the counterterrorism wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and moving more towards the Cold War version 2.0 that we're seeing and certainly Mike 4.8 uh, is going to be totally Cold War sort of stuff now, version 2.0. Mm-hmm. Now the other series uh, is is a historical fiction series, again, espionage, but it's set in, uh, in just before and during World War One, And it is, uh, a, it's quite a bit different because it's not it is my my publisher likes to call it magical realism, uh, and um, and and my description of it is and, and many people don't aren't really familiar with, but Rudyard Kipling wrote a whole series of 
stories. I mean, obviously, most people know about the Jungle Book and mm-hmm. uh, and maybe the Just So stories. But he also wrote a novel, which is considered the first espionage novel. It's called Kim. And it's about a young boy who is incorporated into what was the great game of espionage between Russia and uh, British India. So what I tell people is, if you can imagine Rudyard Kipling's Kim meeting Stan Lee's Doctor Strange mm. uh, just before World War One, that's the storyline. So you have espionage and the great game and the competition between first Russia and, and Great Britain and then during the war, uh, Germany and Great Britain with Russia on as an ally. But you also have mesmerism Tibetan mysticism uh, and, you know, astral projection and all of that kind of stuff going on as well. And ghosts. And and so it's a, it it is uh, the, the other thing the publisher has called it is a, is a YA novel in the sense that the characters are all in their late teens well, not all of them. Obviously, there are many characters who are adults, but the main the main two characters, the protagonist and the antagonist, are in their teens. But uh, truthfully, most of my readers have been uh, not young adults, but full up adults, and uh, they've liked it. The, the the that Raj series is is a challenge because I put real people in the story. So, you know, Lawrence is in Lawrence of Arabia is there. Gertrude Bell is there. Mm. Uh, you know, several German uh, characters who are, who were the adversaries of the British are there. And that's a challenge because I have to make sure that, that my book puts them in the right place at the right time, because otherwise it stops being historical fiction, right? It starts, mm. it starts to become totally fantasy. So, it's a it's 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 great fun. I, I am an amateur, a truly amateur historian in my own way. Both interested in the you know the World War II special operations OSS SOE, uh, but also interested in you know the British Raj because when I first started, we're gonna scroll, we're gonna go all the way back to language school. Uh, in 1986, when I first started, when I first found out I was going to be working in the Afghans, one of the things that I did was I went to the agency library and started taking out, we, the library had all kinds of memoirs of British officers uh, who had served on the frontier, on the Northwest Frontier Province uh, during that time period, working with Afghans and everything else. So I, I've got a, a fairly strong uh, background in that historical side of the house. So it's fun to sort of fit that into the, uh, the story. Hmm. So it's, it's very informed sort of by your own experiences, uh, some of your own, uh, your own history and uh, passions and things like that as well, too. So like, do you find it to be like, what is it that sort of drives you as an author, I guess, like what made you want to write these books, for example, or tell these stories? Once you, you know, once you start the stories, I don't know that most authors might say this, but once you've got the, the characters in your little noggin, they write the story and they just won't, they won't stop bothering you until you write it down. 
So, uh, so far, I've, I mean, I certainly haven't had any success selling these books. So um, it's not, it's not financial. Uh, I'm, I'm still way in the hole on that. Um, so it's not a financial game that I'm interested in. It's just the intellectual, uh, the intellectual satisfaction of putting a story together, developing characters, coming to some sort of conclusion that makes sense uh, and then embedding into those all sort of real stuff that often books don't, uh, you know, can't. Most of, you know, most thrillers are written, not all thrillers, I'm not saying that, but most thrillers are written by people who have read about the trade. They have not lived the trade. Mm -hmm. And so therefore their, their books are, probably you know better as far as as far as writing than mine but they are often pretty easy to find the flaws of the fact that they don't have a clue what espionage is like mm -hmm. they have no idea and so it's sort of like an hearing you kind of talk about it and then obviously knowing your background now like it sounds kind of very similar to almost what ian fleming was doing with james bond where he had some of that experience and that history and, and actually involved in some of that work during World War II. And then he was able to kind of bring some of that to his character. Would you feel like he would be an influence on some of? Oh, certainly. I mean, if you, or... I mean, well, yeah, of course. I mean, for, uh, there's, there, if you're talking about who are my writing influences, mm -hmm. the two, uh, well, there's, there's plenty, right? I mean, Ian Fleming was certain, I mean, it would be, it would be foolish not to, if you write thrillers, not to not to say that Ian Fleming is a main character. Uh, uh, Eric Ambler is another is another one who wrote in the 1950s and and his his stuff. And then uh, my writing style, I have tried as hard as I can to write in the not in the not to sound like Elmore Leonard. But to write like Elmore Leonard, Elmore Leonard wrote books in a, not in a narrative style, but in a dialogue style. So my books are, have uh, tons and tons and tons of dialogue. I don't, I, I don't describe things, certainly don't describe things as well as Ian Fleming did. I, I let the characters tell you what mm -hmm. they're seeing in their dialogue. Okay. So it, it's a, in that sense, the, that's probably my, you know, uh, may not, may be my greatest shortcoming is it's great to try and do that. If you're not very good at it, then, you, you know, you're, you're sort of lost in the trade, but it, it is, uh, like I say, the, the, so far I've had some very kind reviews, uh, from peers who I care about people who, who I, asked to do i mean people like john mulholland and and you know uh stanley mccrystal have done blurbs on the back and they've been willing to do so and those are people who i think know a little bit about uh, about special operations oh, that's fantastic that's that's wonderful and it's interesting you know like it's interesting to let the characters sort of describe what's going on versus doing sort of like a like a tolkien type uh, description where you're describing a room or something like that for an entire chapter right where it's getting we're getting so deep into the details of things right it kind of keeps things going at a good pace so it sounds very interesting where can people uh, pick up your books 
Well, obviously they can, they, I mean, because, because I'm a, uh, I have a, a publisher, but, uh, but they're not a big publisher. So the only place to get the books really are on Amazon. So you can get, but they're also on Kindle. And they're also, I've got, uh, all of my books are now narrated. So they're also on Audible. So, uh, and I think probably most folks find uh, the Audible narrations uh, have been very popular compared Mm. to everything else. I think the problem right now is if you can't get books into bookstores, uh, and, and that's just a function of the fact that the big publishers, when they put their books in the bookstores, they offer a, a deal with a book with the bookstore saying, if you can't sell them, we'll buy them back. Right. I can't offer that deal to uh, a, a, you know, a, a big bookstore. I just don't have the, that kind of financial capability. It's barely, I'm barely able to, to pay for the, all the things that are, that are involved in, in this. Um, so anyhow, that's, so Amazon, uh, you know, Amazon, Kindle and, and Audible, that's the way to find me. And I'm, I am who I am. I'm on J.R. Seeger. So it's, it's not hard to find me on, on, although you have to realize, and I mean, I've come to realize there's like, I don't know, somewhere in the neighborhood of 3 million novels out there mm-hmm. on, on the Amazon website. So you really do have to look under my name. That's about the only way you're going to find me. Hmm. Well, I'll make sure I drop some links and all that as well to uh, to Amazon, so people can can check that out in the description boxes for this episode. Thank you. Things yeah. like that, absolutely. Um, you know, one other thing with regards to your writing and sort of how we initially connected was through some of the writing that you did for Watches of Espionage. Yeah, and- well, I mean, I've had I've had real fun with uh, with uh, the folks at Watches of Espionage. I mean, I did a. I am a you know, I mean, one of the things that I have done as as a hobby post agency career uh is uh, i do collect watches i don't collect mm-hmm. expensive i have no expensive watches i i collect old watches that nobody cares about uh and uh and then i do have a you know a, a slow growing collection of north american watches watches that are made in north america i have a marathon i have uh, uh two vares uh, and uh, just bought a recently bought a Jack Mason from Texas. Mm. There's a lot of the the North American uh, watch manufacturing community is in a renaissance, and that's a really cool thing for me as a as a guy who started with a you know a Bulova, and uh, I've bought several Bulovas for my wife from the 20s because they were very stylish, and and, uh, and again since nobody really wants them they're they're really they're really easy to capture in ebay the um but the watches of espionage stories time as i said early on with you know in the case of the railroad time is essential in espionage you have to be in the right place at the right time for the right amount of time everything Mm -hmm. is measured in time Mm -hmm. i mean in precise time and so you have to have a, a good timepiece of some sort. It doesn't have to be a fancy timepiece. I mean, all the way through Afghanistan, I was wearing, you know, uh, quartz, cheap quartz washes. Uh, I, uh, you know, in, in a good chunk of my career, I was, I've worn, you know, inexpensive watches as long as they, and mostly quartz because they were accurate 
and 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 reliable and and could be banged up pretty they're not you know now that doesn't mean that there aren't officers in the agency who have very expensive watches on their wrists but but mostly what what it's about is about time it's about making sure that you because you you know your job is to keep your agent alive that's your primary job it's not your secondary job is to collect intelligence but your primary job is to keep them alive and to keep them alive you have to be sure that when you say i'm going to be at a certain place at a certain time for us to meet for us for x amount of time you need to be on the x at the dot mm-hmm. and that's and that's something that means that i mean watches of espionage has captured that 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 focus that's why it's that's why they can find people who will write about this because it is in this you know in the in the military especially special ops community that's also true but in in the intelligence world it is absolutely true hmm. and so like one of the things with timekeeping specifically for espionage and maybe it's just an image that's sort of been painted by watches of espionage is that there's certain brands that seem to be uh that that sort of work is drawn towards whether it's brightling or citizen or things like that like can you expand on that at all? You mentioned, you know, seeing people wearing expensive timepieces. Like, is there a particular reason certain brands would be attracted to that kind of work? Or is that just sort of, you know, the oh, no, it's the- no. Yeah, it's a myth. I mean, it's yeah. a, I mean, it's, it's not, I mean, it's an, it is, is it true that people wear expensive watches? Absolutely. It's true. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it true that, that when guys are downrange and kitted up with body armor and everything else, are they probably wearing, a uh a g-shock yeah mm-hmm. uh, or or an iron you know timex iron man uh you know in 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 today's world i mean it, it, there's a there's far more choices uh, i mean i you know like i say i've got a marathon i've got a sanguine uh you know i've got a Vare. all of them are just as shockproof as a g-shock uh but but they weren't there when i was doing the trade so you know there, there's that i think that that you know it is one of the few things that both men and women i mean at the, at some point a good watch is is a is a piece of jewelry mm-hmm. it's a it is a statement it's just like wearing a a nice suit or driving a nice car it's a statement of success mm-hmm. um does would would a person who is wearing one of these expensive watches uh then go out on the street dressed you know dressed down and be still wearing that fancy watch probably not mm-hmm. you know because that's that and my most recent uh note to um the, my mo- most recent article in watches of espionage talks about that i mean you don't want to draw attention to yourself and an expensive watch is one of those things that will, in fact, draw attention to you. Uh, so it is. I know lots of people who are watch collectors in, in inside the intelligence community, and they wear them when they're in the office or uh, on a, a trip. But when they go out on the street, do they wear them? Maybe if it's consistent with the rest of their clothing, but if it isn't, 
it's going to stay at the station locked up and they're going to slap on an old beater watch of some sort, an old, you know, a, a and something consistent with where they are. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it'd be really easy to wear a Seiko in Asia, but in, you know, in South Asia, you're more likely to find an old guys wearing an old Rado because Rado early on, even though it's a Swiss firm decided that South Asia was their target audience. So I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I, I, my collection is based more on other things than plus I'm not rich enough to be able to buy the, you know, $10,000 watches. So anyways, that's just fine too. Are there any specific pieces in your collection you'd like to share with us a little bit or kind of go over specifically with us? I, I think that, well, I mean, as I said, I, I mean, I've got my, you know, my, my dad's, my dad's chronograph, which is a garland, mm-hmm. uh, which a garland, uh, if you look it up, it doesn't even exist. It's a, this is, uh, see if I can get this. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that'll focus or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a, a 19 late forties. Uh, garland was, was, was the, the less expensive, uh, arm of the ball watch company okay so um so that's that to me this is a you know i mean obviously it's an important piece uh my my bulova is 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 important to me uh otherwise the other watches i mean there's this there's uh i mean i i really like the fact that there are american firms out there making watches now mm-hmm. and uh you know i'm i have a my, I was wearing earlier today because I was doing yard work. Uh, Vare makes a, a, a quartz uh, field watch, and uh, you know it's I, it really pleases me to look at that that dial and have it say uh, U.S. made or U.S. assembled American quartz. So not only are they the, the U.S. rules are such that they can't actually say U.S. made. There's, there's complicated rules on, on uh, which are far more complicated than they are actually in Switzerland or mm-hmm. Germany or any of these places. But in America, you can say U.S. assembled. And if you have U.S., you know, the, in the case of they are there, they're using U.S., I, I, they're growing the course, their own course crystals. But uh, and then there's just, you know, I have, oh, another piece that I have, which I, I really I'm very pleased with is I have been able to collect uh, or find twice actually I've given given one away but a uh, the Bulova astronaut okay nice uh, and, and I don't know if you're familiar with the astronaut or not but it mm-hmm. was it's a tuning fork watch but it was the watch that was issued to the A12 ox cart drivers so the, the Blackbird drivers of the agency and uh I think that's just having having one of those still around is just pretty cool. Uh, when they finally when it finally quits, I'm not sure what I'll do with it because I'm not sure who I'd find who would be able to service a tuning fork watch. But you never can tell. But it's it's a you know it's that's another piece that it took me some years to search for it because not because they aren't out there, but because they the ones that were out there were way above my budget. 
Hmm. So that's very interesting. You know, with regards to your writing, going back to that for a moment, like you see a lot of times with certain authors that that write, whether they're thrillers or action novels or that sort of thing, you know, they're gear guys, they maybe they're watch guys, knife guys, that sort of thing. They get the opportunity to kind of write some of that stuff into their work. Have you had the opportunity to do that at all with your writing? You know, I've been I've been sort of careful with uh, with that. I'm just not sure how you handle trademark stuff. And so what I regularly will, will hint at, I'll talk about uh, a dive watch that has, you know, big luminous dive mark, you know, luminous markers, or I'll talk about one of my characters has a, uh, a watch that has tritium tube loom. Well, okay. There's only two companies on the planet that really do tritium tube loom. That's right. Marathon and ball. Mm-hmm. So, uh, when I, but I don't call them, I mean, I, back in the day when Ian Fleming was talking about Rolex watches and different kinds of shirts and all that stuff. Okay. I mean, you know, I can talk about my characters having, you know, Mercedes and Toyota Hiluxes and stuff like that. But when you start talking about, specific names i'm just i'm a you know i don't want to get crossways with somebody on a trademark so mm-hmm. i will just i'll leave it up to the character to describe to or the i'll leave it up to the reader to figure out what is uh you know i mean when i'm talking about weapons certainly i can talk about i mean my my characters carry clocks well that's because the agency weapon is a clock and uh the special ops community is carrying either a clock or they're carrying sigs right i mean that's mm-hmm. just that is just is uh, that's not a, a giveaway but to pick and choose like names of stuff fleming was incredible about this he'll talk about everything from you know the 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 shirts that that bond was wearing to mm-hmm. You know the 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 kind of uh, the, the kind of coffee he drank, everything. I mean, cigarettes. Just, yeah. Oh yeah, all of that, and 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 of course the 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 Rolex, uh, which is uh, you know uh, something that he that he talks about as well. But you know, I've left it I've left it to the character's imagination. Uh, and in fact, I I point out to often people say to me, "Well, you don't describe." Mike for much. Mm. And I say to them, if they've read the book, do you have an image of what Sue O'Connell looks like? They're like, well, absolutely. Well, then that's your image. Mm. Why, why should I get in the way of your imagination? Uh, you know, I, I don't really, I mean, if I'm, if she's looking or targeting someone, I'll describe that target, but most of her, and I'll describe, some of the other characters as far as what they wear and stuff. But uh, beyond that, I, I leave it up to the reader to use their imagination. That's interesting. Some of the best novels are kind of the ones where you get to kind of create it in your own mind as you read it. Right. So I think that's very, very interesting. Well, thank you. Yeah, I think, I think it is too. I mean, I've, I've always felt that way. And uh, you know, the, if you think about it a second, there's very little ever described of Bond in mm-hmm. the Bond novels. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's got dark hair. He's got a four, a forelock, basically, and a cruel smile and, and you know, gray eyes. 
that's about it. Mm-hmm. He doesn't really talk much about how tall he is, how fit he is, how any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, even even his Rolex, they just say it's a Rolex watch. It was it was assumed that it was an Explorer because that's what Ian Fleming wore, but it was sort of just the movies that made it a, a Submariner, right? So, I mean, they, they tend to be, even with like Clive Cussler and the Dirk Pitt novels, he just says an orange-faced Doxa, right? So there's a lot of things like that where they sort of, you know, we create with our own imagination, we sort of uh, create these own narratives of what they think they would or should be based on, you know, our own experiences or what we think sort of thing. Right. Absolutely. That's very interesting. Well, you know, uh, JR, it's been incredible chatting with you. I mean, the amount of knowledge and experience you've shared and the stories you've told, has been absolutely incredible to hear your insights into all this stuff. The last question I want to ask you, and, and I ask a lot of my, my guests this as well. And each one always has such an interesting, unique answer is just, if you could, talk to a younger version of yourself, right? Having all the experiences that you've had now up to this point, done all the incredible and interesting things that you've done. What is one piece of advice that you would give to that young man graduating high school about to go on this adventure of life? I think that the most important thing is what I've said early on, which is stay curious. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you, if you decide early on that you're going to go on one route or another route that, I mean, first of all, what happens when it fails? I mean, mm-hmm. that happened to me. I mean, my, I, I had several failures early on. I mean, it wasn't any, it wasn't a guarantee that I would go into the CIA right from, from high school. I never thought of it that way, but if you can stay curious and expand your, your intellectual horizons, then no matter what you end up doing, you will succeed at. Yeah, that's very good. hundred percent. I think that's awesome advice. Yeah. Being open, being dynamic, um, you know, being interested in the world around you and the things that are happening. It's very easy for someone to kind of pigeonhole themselves into one direction or one, um, you know, sort of theme when it comes to what they do with their life and having that open mind can really sort of set you off in all sorts of paths and sort of make it a bit of a mystery and a bit of fun along the way. Right. Absolutely. And you know, the other part of it is that if you're curious, uh, then you'll probably be the other, the other trait that's really essential is you'll probably be resilient because when one path doesn't quite work for you, you'll probably have half a dozen other ideas that you've had for a while that are out there because you're curious, you, you, you weren't sure which direction it was going to go. So, you know, curiosity improves your chances of resilience when you do have something, when you do bark your knuckles, right? When you do stub your toe. Hmm. That's fantastic. Very, very good. Uh, JR, again, it's been so incredible chatting with you. Thank you again for coming on the show and taking the time to tell us about everything you spoke to us about today. Really quickly, uh, just one more time for the end of the show here, where can people uh, find your books or interact with some of the content you're putting out there? I think the most, well, I mean, you've already talked about uh, my books are on Amazon Mm -hmm. and all the Amazon platforms, right? So Kindle, as well as Audible. You can see me on, uh, you can watch uh, my other stuff. I've been on the Team House. I've been on the Burn Bag. And then, of course, uh, probably the most fun has been, my writing has been on Watches of Espionage. Mm -hmm. So I've got three out there now. And no telling 
Uh, and then of course I've got like 20 different articles on uh, in the CIA's uh, journal called Studies in Intelligence. So you can go there too. Yeah, I'll try and link as many of those as I can in the description box below for people to go and check out. Um, likewise for myself, if anyone has any questions, comments, feedback, feel free to shoot me an email at podcast at gmail.com. Additionally, if you uh, want to follow along with the show, sort of at a central hub of information, you can head over to Rico's Podcast on Instagram. If you enjoy this episode in an audio medium, we'd like to enjoy it in a video medium as well. You can head over to YouTube, just head to the Rico's Watches Podcast YouTube channel. So make sure you like, subscribe, the bell icon, all that YouTube stuff so that the uh, show can continue to grow and reach uh, new people. JR, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure and an honor to interview you today. It was absolutely tremendous to talk with you. You're, you're very welcome, and it has been a pleasure for me as well. Thank you. you take care.